Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Jim, as you know, we have a deep and rich back catalog of more than 360 shows and counting. This week, we share one that was first recorded five years ago. The Case for Passion and Meaning in Our Lives, with Mary Roach, Rose Gowan, Karen Firestone, Finn Murphy, Emily Esfahani-Smith, and Neil deGrasse Tyson. We're done. He drives me back to the bus station, begins to snow. This is December in Ithaca. But then he worried. He said, you know, I don't know if the bus will come th- make it through the snow. If it doesn't, he wrote down his home phone number and said, call me. You can spend the night with my family. And, and, and you're tomorrow. a high school kid. Yeah, I'm high school. I'm a, I'm, I am nobody. I'm a 17-year-old nobody. And this shaped my life in a fundamental way. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? And again, Richard, just before we start, I think it's so cool. This episode was from five years ago. We've been doing this for a long time now. We've had the opportunity to meet so many interesting people and hear their stories. And it's really, it's been a great experience kind of sharing this journey with you and with our producer, Miranda. So let's, Richard, you wrote here, Roll the audio tape. <laughs> that's an that's a reference to decades past. <laughs> what tape? Like like is that like Scotch tape? How does it work? Yeah, yeah, no, big, old magnetic audio tape on big reel to reel tape recorders. Yeah. Okay, let's go. Let's roll it. Jim, this show is inspired by many of our guests who come to our table for one really big reason. They're, they're passionate about what they do. Right. In an age of so much complaint and division, we think we really don't do enough to celebrate the things that actually improve our lives. Yeah, passion is certainly one of them. So let's start with science journalist Mary Roach and parts of our chat with her that were not included in our recent Fix It Show episode earlier this month. Well, you know, as a longtime science magazine editor, it was such a thrill to listen to Mary and interview her. I've been a big fan for many, many years. Yeah, she's fascinated by weird science and the human body in extreme situations. More than one person has said that I'm kind of a a 12-year-old boy at heart, and I I wouldn't deny that, but I do think that we all have that little 12-year-old boy or girl inside, and and, uh, 
there's no reason to be ashamed of, of that. So I, these are all things that I just find fascinating. And I have a sense that readers and, and just the population at large probably does have a fascination for it too. They may just be less open about admitting that they find this stuff interesting. Now that's vintage Mary Roach. Absolutely. I love that her insatiable curiosity and sense of humor takes her to all these weird places that I guess most of us wouldn't even think to go. Yeah, and it makes life more interesting, which is, I guess, what a good storyteller does. Hear more of Mary Roach and all our other guests here by going to our website, howdowefixit.me. You can search for any name that you want. So let's say you know we've interviewed Neil deGrasse Tyson. You search for Neil deGrasse Tyson and pop, it comes right up. Also, of course, we're on iTunes and every place else. Podcasts are made available. Never hurts to rate us. We love those five-star reviews. But we also love your honest comments and your suggestions, so keep them coming. And we love that one-word thing, subscribe. (laughs) (laughs) All right, next up, Neil deGrasse Tyson, another great science writer who I've known in my work and who we just so much fun talking to. Neil spoke with us at the American Museum of Natural History, where he's the director of the world-famous Hayden Planetarium. He became fascinated with the universe and astrophysics at a very young age. When I was in high school, I actually saw Carl Sagan speak. It was a big thrill for me. Well, Neil did me one better. You also had an encounter with Carl Sagan. It went a little farther. When you were a senior in high school, you got on a bus and went to see him. Well, he invited me to come to campus. I had applied to Cornell and was accepted at Cornell. But unknown to me, the admissions office forwarded my application to him for his reaction and comment. And in response to that, he sent a personal invitation to me. He was very well known. I mean, he'd been on The Tonight Show multiple times. Itself a bit controversial. What is a scientist doing? He got backlash. There was was some blowback. And in retrospect, how shallow that attitude is. To think that a scientist should not go to where people, um, to to what people tune into, and then share these discoveries, these great discoveries of modern science, especially knowing that it's NASA, and NASA is funded by a tax base that we all pay for. So um, he was just simply telling you what you paid for. <laughs> was, right. That's all he was doing. Uh, and I took him up on that invitation. Uh, got on a bus from Port Authority of New York, went up to Ithaca, and uh, he met me outside the building. I went in, saw the lab, and we chatted. He, he sat behind his desk, and then he reached back and pulled out a book. Didn't even look, just pulled a book off a shelf. It was one of his books. I said, wow, that's the coolest thing ever. <laughs> he doesn't even have to look, and he his hand touches a book that he wrote. So he signed it to me. I still have this book. Which one is it? Uh, it was The Cosmic Connection. Mm-hmm. And we're done. He drives me back to the bus station. It begins to snow. This is December in Ithaca. But then he worried. He said, you know, I don't know if the bus will come th- can make it through the snow. If it doesn't, he wrote down his home phone number and said, call me. You can spend the night with my family. And, and, and you're tomorrow. a high school kid. Yeah, I'm a high school. I'm a, I'm, I am nobody. I'm a 17-year-old nobody. And... This shaped my life in a fundamental way. I mean, I'd known I wanted to study the universe long before I even knew Carl Sagan existed. But to see someone that well-known give the kind of attention he did to me, a nobody, I thought was astonishing. And I said to myself, if I am ever as remotely – I remember thinking this in the moment – 
if I'm ever as remotely as famous as Carl Sagan, then I will treat students who are up and coming, who want to do what I have committed my life to, I will treat them the way he has treated me. So I'll joke about this, but it's, it's mostly true, right? If I have the president on the phone, okay, I say, I got to go. I'll call you back. There's a student at the door who has a question for me. Neil deGrasse Tyson, his latest book is Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. Now let's go from the outer reaches of the universe to Brownsville, Texas, a mostly Hispanic city right along the U.S.-Mexico border. Brownsville, El Paso, and many other communities in South Texas are facing a health emergency with very high rates of obesity and diabetes. Brownsville responded with a mix of public initiatives, including a new farmer's market, many miles of bike lanes, and a community-wide health challenge. One of the key people behind that is Rose Gallen, who is an obstetrician-gynecologist She's also a city commissioner in Brownsville. Why is she passionate about solutions? Well, my father and his family were all from Brownsville, and I was born and raised here. And pretty much all of my father's side of the family has diabetes. And I began to be very concerned with respect to not just myself, but my children and what kind of legacy we were going to leave behind for the next generation. So you have very high rates of type 2 diabetes in Brownsville. Now, this is a problem all over the country, but it's somewhat more acute in your area that has a a majority Hispanic population. Um, There appears to be some genetic tendency in Hispanic populations, increasing the risk of developing type 2 diabetes. And this is made much worse if eating choices are poor and if the person is inactive. So the more overweight they are, if they have this genetic tendency, they are more likely to develop diabetes. So there in Brownsville, you kind of have a double whammy. You have a population that's poor and uh, pushed into some unhealthy habits, partly as a result of that. And then also a majority Hispanic population, which may be somewhat more vulnerable to these illnesses. Yes, they combine together to, to make it a perfect storm almost. Now, how does poverty, which is very widespread um, in your community, and, and processed food, how are they linked to obesity? Well, if you walk into any grocery store, probably in America, but certainly here, organic fruits and vegetables are going to be more expensive than um, than those that are not. And so it's it's much cheaper to purchase processed foods. Sugary drinks are much cheaper than the more healthy varieties. And so if you don't have a high income, you're more apt to buy um, things that are cheaper to keep your family fed. So you were observing this as a physician in Brownsville, and at some point you said you wanted to have a bigger impact, and you decided to run for the city commission. How did you make that decision? I was involved in one of the first initiatives that the School of Public Health um, came to us with, and that was bringing back a farmer's market. South Texas is hugely agricultural and historically agricultural, and, and it made no sense that we didn't have a farmer's market any longer. So I was the one that would interact with the city officials trying to acquire the right of way to be able to hold the market in the park. And then there was a lot of red tape and I became frustrated with that. So I decided one of the ways that I needed to participate was to try and change some of those policies. And the only way you can do that is if you're on the inside and and part of those policy makers. 
Rose Gowan, who is commissioner at large in Brownsville, Texas, and her passion about healthy eating and exercise, as well as concern for the devastating impact of diabetes, inspired her to make a run for public office. Our next guest is investment advisor and asset manager Karen Firestone. She has a personal story behind her passion, which is the study of risk. She's the author of Even the Odds, Sensible Risk-Taking in Business, Investing, and Life. Obviously, listeners of this podcast know that risk, danger, and how we think about risk is a big fascination (laughs) for me. She also runs an asset management firm that she co-founded after 22 years working at Fidelity Investments. Now, all parents, and women especially, have to balance work and family, and this involves risk. The past few years, I've thought more and more about risk applied to other aspects of life beyond investing. I'm an investor by profession, but I think about risk-taking all the time. Now, you started your company. You left what sounds like a fantastic job, Mm -hmm. um, probably very lucrative, and then you went on on your own. You were in your late 40s, and you started your own company. Mm -hmm. So um, was that the right size risk? Was that the right time risk for you? And that's something that I thought about a lot. I had a partner. So one thing I did to mitigate that risk of being on my own was to have a partner who had different skills and different contacts and potentially different clients. I saw in your book, you met Ann Landers on an airplane flight one time. I did. What was that like? I did. It was the best. Um, I had a set of twins. I found out when I was five and a half months pregnant that I was having another set of twins. Wow. I thought I was having one baby again. And I really freaked out. I thought my career is going to be over. What's the rest of my life look like? It's a disaster. I mean, I love kids. I do. But I just didn't think I could manage all of that. I got on a plane and a woman walked toward me. I recognized her, but I didn't remember who she was. She sat two seats for me. And then she pulled out a huge a folder that was stuffed with envelopes. And then I realized it was Ann Landers. I asked her if she would talk to me. And she said, of course, dear. And what advice did she give you? Well, the advice was that there was a tremendous risk that I would be unhappy if I couldn't continue with my career. And if I was unhappy, then my family would be unhappy. So the risk was creating the right environment where we would all be comfortable. Me and my career, my husband and my children with the kind of environment that we created for them. Karen Firestone, whose passion is thinking about risk. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Coming up, a long-haul truck driver, plus a writer and editor who has a lot to say about the need for grace and meaning in our lives. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Next, one of my favorite guests, long-distance truck driver Finn Murphy. He has a passion for roads, and I loved our conversation about his favorite interstate highways. Finn is the author of The Long Haul, A Trucker's Tales of Life on the Road, and it's an account of his years in the moving business. We talked to him about some of his favorite roads. Eastern Washington is great on Interstate 90. Um, Interstate 10 from El Paso across New Mexico and Arizona, mm-hmm. another, another wonderful one. Um, Alligator Alley in Florida, the bottom end of Interstate 75 goes right smack through the Everglades. That's a great one. Uh, Interstate 95 from Bangor, Maine, up to Caribou, Maine. That's another great one. And, and perhaps not good for truckers, but Highway 1 in California along the coast. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's, just, uh, that's 101, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it was 101, 101 and then 101 is right on the coast, yeah. which yeah. is probably not something you want to take a 70-foot uh, Yeah, so I don't, think I've been on, I don't think I've been on one. And then the last thing on the on the great roads, though, uh, I love the New Jersey Turnpike. Yeah, wow. you write about the yeah. energy and excitement yeah. of driving yeah, well, up to the George Washington Bridge on yeah. the New Jersey Turnpike. Yeah, yeah. Why? Why, why that? It, did, it didn't didn't ring for me. It didn't ring for oh, you. Oh, it did for me. <laughs> okay, all right. That's why you got two I, hosts here. I grew up there. <laughs> but especially if you've just driven across the country and you're coming up on the George Washington Bridge late in the afternoon, it's really something. Yeah, sixteen lanes. And then you've got the steel girders of Elizabeth, New Jersey on the right. As you're, so I'm heading north, right? So on the right, you've got Elizabeth, New Jersey. On the left, you've got Newark Airport. And then you've got the Outer Bridge Crossing Bridge and the Gothels Bridge. I mean, this is a, a massive human undertaking. It's like, yeah, yeah. That, I, I, I found that part of the book to completely speak to me. One of the wisest guests on How Do We Fix It is Emily Esfahani Smith, who is the author of The Power of Meaning, Crafting a Life That Matters. You say that there's a difference between a happy life and a meaningful life. Tell us what you mean by that. A happy life is defined by things that make us feel good. So like sleeping in, eating sweets, um, going shopping, like how we feel moment to moment. Um, It's also been kind of provocatively associated with being a taker versus a giver, to use the language of Adam Grant at the Wharton School. A meaningful life is different. The defining feature of a meaningful life is connecting and contributing to something that's bigger than you are. And when researchers look at what what makes people feel like their lives are meaningful, it's usually things that are effortful. They can even be hard in the moment, like practicing a musical instrument, studying, reflecting on your values, cheering, cheering up someone who's down. But that ultimately kind of bring you a deeper sense of satisfaction and peacefulness. So in your book, you write about four aspects or pillars to meaning. What are they? I really wanted to know how we can each go about leading meaningful lives. So I interviewed dozens of people all across the country. I turned to this new and growing body of research in psychology. And I also looked at what the great thinkers in philosophy and literature had to say. And these four themes came up again and again, 
in the research on what makes life meaningful. And they are one, a sense of belonging. So being in relationships where you feel valued and you feel like you matter and where you in turn treat other people like they're valued and like they matter. The second pillar was purpose, having something worthwhile to do with your time. Purpose and meaning, we we tend to use those terms interchangeably, but purpose is actually, it's a far-reaching goal that we think is important and that usually involves making some kind of contribution to the world. Um, Storytelling is the third pillar of meaning, and this is taking your experiences and weaving them into a narrative that explains who you are and where you came from. The final pillar, transcendence, is about those experiences where you feel small and yet connected to something much bigger. So religion is kind of a classic place where people experience transcendence through rituals and prayer and meditation. But you can, of course, experience this in more secular contexts as well, such as being in nature or listening to music or viewing a beautiful work of art. Okay, Jim, a test. The, the four things she mentioned, what are they? <laughs> they, are, um, they are belonging, purpose, storytelling, and transcendence. Yes, and I grew up living in a Sufi meeting house in Montreal, which meant that twice a week, the Sufis would come over to our home and meditate for several hours. And Sufism is this kind of monastic, mystical tradition that's associated with Islam. And I know that it was an important source of meaning for my parents. And there really was this strong sense of love and service that I think amplified the sense of community. So there is something really powerful about the community that religion provides. The flip side of that, though, is that religion in our country and in the developed world is less important as a as a building block of meaning than it was in years past. Fewer people are going to church with a particular religion. So people have to find belonging and, and find those other pillars on their own. And I think that that's hard. It, it, it's a heavy burden to place on an individual's shoulders to, to go out and find meaning in the world. So we were just talking about purpose. And there's an interesting example of zookeepers who have manual labor jobs perhaps they're low skilled in many cases but but they have a sense of purpose very often why it's really interesting with zookeepers even though they don't make a whole lot of money their jobs are physically difficult many of them felt drawn from a young age to care for animals i interviewed one woman named ashley richmond who is a zookeeper at the detroit zoo And she told me that even though I spend 80% of my time shoveling animal waste from one place to another to keep the yards clean, I don't think of my purpose as shoveling animal poop. I think of my purpose as doing everything in my power to care for the animals and to ensure that their lives are as rich and as stimulating as possible. There's a lovely example of the fourth building block, transcendence, um, when you visit Texas, I believe that you were at uh, Marfa, Texas. It was Marfa, Texas? Yeah, with astronomers, right? Yeah, it's near Marfa. It's actually Fort Davis, Texas. Um, that's where the observatory is. It's out in West Texas in the Chihuahua Desert. And I went out there because this observatory is home to some of the 
darkest night skies in the United States, which means that it's a great place to do research on the stars, but it's also a great place to have a stargazing party, which is the observatory hosts these several times a week, I think. So I, I went out there and I was there with, you know, maybe a couple hundred other people. And we were sitting in this amphitheater as our guide pointed out all the different stars and the constellations to us. And I stayed the night and I woke up after the moon had set to go out and see the stars. And I had never seen shooting stars before, but that evening I saw one after another and the sky was just dotted with millions of stars. And it makes you think how small we are in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, and, it's, kind of, it's kind of counterintuitive that you, yeah. you feel small in the grand scheme of things. And yet somehow you're also awestruck. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, the word awe, the root of it kind of takes us to the word awesome, but also to the word awful, because there is this kind of ambiguity about the state. You do feel like overwhelmed by something beautiful, but it's also terrifying because you it makes you feel so small. And, and in terms of finding solutions to the lack of meaning, you said you had a couple of mm-hmm. examples of that. What's, what's your other one? It's recognizing that purpose isn't some grand thing like you're, you're you don't you don't have to work on a cure for cancer or write the great american novel to lead a purposeful life purpose is just really about doing something that makes a contribution to other people or to the world so if you're if you feel like your life doesn't have purpose right now i think that one way to get more purpose is to ask yourself, you know, what's one thing that I can do today? What's one thing that I can do tomorrow to make someone's life a little bit better? Emily Esfahani Smith, who has spent a lifetime thinking about the importance of meaning as opposed to what many of us think about the pursuit of happiness. Okay, we're back in 2022 now. (laughs) And uh, Jim has a brand new recommendation. Yeah, actually, this will take us back to my early influences in journalism. When I was in eighth grade, my super cool big sister got me a subscription to Rolling Stone, which wasn't even like a magazine then. It was it was a newspaper tabloid that was folded over on the on this kind of crappy newsprint. And there was a writer there, an editor named Ben Fong Torres, such an exotic name. The magazine was based in San Francisco at that time. And he interviewed everybody and he wrote about everything. And every time I saw that byline, I was just like, wow, this guy must just have the coolest life. And now there's a great Netflix documentary called Like a Rolling Stone about the life of Ben Fong Torres. And, you know, you think it's going to be mostly a music documentary, but what it really is is a story about the immigrant experience in America. His parents were Chinese immigrants. The reason his name is Fong Torres is that there were so many restrictions on people coming from China in our immigration system back in the early 20th century that his father took a random name from somebody in the Philippines in order to kind of get through the immigration system. So he has this story of his family, his very traditional Chinese-American parents who really were mystified by this son who wanted to, you know, work with a bunch of hippies in this this crazy little magazine and interview rock and roll stars. But he himself turned into such a, a role model for so many journalists. And for me, who grew up on this stuff and then went on to be a magazine editor and then went on to work for Jan Wenner, who um, 
was of course the founder of Rolling Stone. So it was just, it hit a lot of notes for me. And, and it also really made me remember what great journalism those guys did. It was really, really impressive. A lot of what we think of today as kind of long form journalism or what some people call new journalism, a lot of it came from the pages of Rolling Stone. And a note to listeners, I was watching you, Jim, just do this. You did it without a script. You, all of that description of this show, so impressive. I always <laughs> have to have a script when I'm doing it. Well, this. I guess it's, it's just, this, this is something I'm passionate about. So I will be watching Like a Rolling Stone, The Life and Times of Ben Fong Torres on Netflix. This is something I think unites all of our guests. They're fired up about something. They found meaning in their lives through not just some kind of interest, but a real passion. Yeah, to... a, a practice. Yeah. So everything from philosophy or thinking about risk to driving a truck up the New Jersey Turnpike. Yeah. Speaking for me, Jim, podcasting is my passion. I love doing this show. And I've been learning a ton from you and Miranda for the past couple of years. In fact, the idea for this episode comes from Miranda Schaefer, who's always a voice in our ear reminding us to ask that passion question to our guests. Why did you become interested in this subject? Right. I think we've asked that of almost every person who's been on the show. So thanks for that, Miranda. And that's our show. If you like what you heard, as we said before, always helps to go to iTunes and yeah, get the comments and the subscribe button. Yeah, do it right now. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. I'm Richard Davies. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. And our music is by Lou Stravinsky. This is a production of Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Check us out at DaviesContent.com. And thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.